You're listening to the New Hope Church podcast. To learn more about what we're doing on the south side of Indianapolis, you can check us out online at becomehope.com. If you like what you're hearing here, be sure you check out one of our companion podcasts. We have a daily devotional podcast called Let's Find Out Together, as well as an apologetics podcast called Salty Saints. Let's listen in. Today's talk comes from Matt Hart. So my name's Matt. I'm part of our family ministries team here at the church. And over the past few weeks, we've been journeying through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've been talking specifically about this theme, hope in the midst of chaos. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes, as we've talked about, is a book of wisdom and reflection. It's a book that talks about the meaning and the purpose of life. It's typically attributed to Solomon, who wrote it later in his life, kind of looking back and realizing some of the mistakes he had made. And as we started this series, Randy kind of unpacked the idea that this book particularly explores the futility of human endeavors and the limitations of human wisdom. In other words, after the first week, he said it was a message that you probably left feeling a little bit depressed, but he did a really good job not making us feel that way, which was good. Then last week, Zach kind of began to unpack this idea that the book isn't just about the futility of human endeavors, but it also offers guidance on how to live wisely and enjoy God's gifts. Now, as I thought about the theme of chaos, there was a particular movie reference that came to mind because, you know, we can't let Zach have all the fun. And I just needed an excuse to display something else from my office. So yet again, we get another Lego piece. This may not happen every time, I promise. But Avengers Infinity War is definitely a movie where chaos enters the scene of the world. Because during this movie, the villain Thanos is on a quest to collect six Infinity Stones to power his gauntlet so that in his words, he can correct humanity, which literally means... At the snap of his fingers, half of the population is erased. And he succeeds in that movie. Sorry, spoiler alert. There's a second half. You can watch that later. But with one snap of his fingers, he erases half of the population, sending the world into chaos. And as I thought about this theme of chaos, really, when it comes to ourselves, chaos really invades our homes, right? It's an unwelcome guest that causes issues in our lives. And as I thought about my own life in particular, there were kind of a couple stories that came to mind. The first is revolving around our son, who many of you know, you would look at him today and you would say there was never anything wrong with him, unless you're in the house with him. No, I'm just kidding. He's a wonderful kid. But when he was born, he was a month premature. Nobody had any idea, and he spent the first month of his life in the NICU hooked up to all kinds of machines that dinged and had bells and did all kinds of stuff that instituted chaos immediately in our lives. He would literally fight the machines that were trying to keep him alive because he didn't know any better. Well, thankfully, 15 years later, he's healthy, he's good, but there was definitely a season of chaos. The other story from our family is from our other child, Ellie, who you may or may not know because you may look at her and you may think everything is fine with her as well. 
Well, roughly about seven years ago, she was diagnosed with juvenile arthritis. And that's something that honestly with our family, we have no idea how to manage or how to help or what to do. With the help of the doctors over the past several years, we've been able to kind of manage that pain and kind of work on that with her, but oftentimes there's little relief. And so there's definitely moments of chaos. And you may say, okay, why are you talking about chaos in movies and why are you talking about chaos in your family? Well, it's because today we're going to talk about, guess what, the topic of chaos in our families, but in a positive way. And you may say, that's impossible. I'll prove you wrong. But we're going to look at the words of the writer of Ecclesiastes. We're going to look at some New Testament passages as well. And as we start our time today, I want to direct your attention to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 12 to 13. And here's what it says. It says, but even though a person sins a hundred times and still lives a long time, I know that those who fear God will be better off. The wicked will not prosper, for they do not fear God. Their days will never grow long like the evening shadows. You see, the author of Ecclesiastes understood that wise people fear God, and they enjoy life because they recognize the limits of their knowledge. Wise individuals understand that everybody dies. It's a part of life, and so they eat well, dress well, love well, and work well. As Randy alluded to the first week, wisdom balances the harsh realities of life with its fleeting joys, including the topic of family, which the author illustrates in chapter 9, verse 9, saying this, live happily with the woman you love though all, through all the meaningless days of life that God has given you under the sun. The wife God gives you is a reward for all your earthly toil. Now, I think I got a feeling for how Zach feels when he gets these messages, because the topic of families is not a nice, easy one to talk about. It's not one you can wrap up neatly with a bow, right? Because if you think about families, it's a difficult topic for us to discuss because there's a variety of backgrounds. For example, some of us may come from a blended family. Some of us may come from a traditional family. Some people maybe have gone through a divorce. Some people are widowed. Some people are raising kids or some people, and God bless you for doing this, you're raising someone else's kids. Some of us may be married and some of us may be single. But in all my exploration about looking at the topic of families, there are two things that I think everyone who's in this room today and everybody who's watching online has in common. The first thing is this. It comes back to our family of origin. You ready for it? We didn't have a choice in the matter. It's okay, you can laugh. We all got baggage, we get it. You know the old saying, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. And maybe this started back in middle school when you went to a friend's house and you said, well, their family's really put together and they're really perfect and they've got all these things that I want or I think I need. And it would be great if I was a part of their family instead of a part of my family. Families are difficult, right? And I think part of that is because the words like father, mother, brother, sister, those are not emotionally neutral words. And here's what I mean by that is each of them have emotion 
when you hear those words, right? That you hear those words and you, hear th- you think about things like the information or joy or chaos that you have with those relationships that make them challenging. So the first thing's from your family of origin, that you didn't have a choice in the matter. The second thing that I think we all have in common is that no one you are related to is as smart as you are. Just saying. You know, probably started same time, middle school, high school, that you said, well, if my mom and dad and my family and my siblings, if they just listened to me, life would be so much better. We'd get so much further faster. But I would dare say that the opposite is also true, that there are probably times that we get frustrated because we feel like we should know what we're doing or how to handle a situation, how to accomplish what's before us, and we just feel at a loss. Parents, that's specifically addressed to you because when your child is sent home from the hospital, that little baby should come with an instruction manual. But those nurses and doctors don't give you that, do they? They tell you, good luck. And in some cases, you need that. But here's the thing. So two things in common. But what do we typically do when we struggle with a topic? Well, we typically, as Christians, we say, well, we go to the Word of God. But have you ever spent time looking through this particular book for examples of family? Because what you may or may not know there really aren't spectacular examples of families from Scripture. Let me give you a few examples, make you feel a little bit better. So Jesus, son of God, who's given earthly parents, take him on vacation. And as they're on this trip, they decide the trip is over and it's time to go home. And they're roughly two to three days from where they were when they suddenly look around and go, "Um, hey, Joseph, did you get him? No, Mary, I thought you did. So parents, if you've ever lost your child, and I get it, like things happen, it's a terrible feeling, like you're in good company because the son of God's own earthly parents lost him. Or let's go all the way back to the beginning of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. And God creates everything. He creates man and woman. He places them in perfection in the garden. And what happens? Man choose pretty girl over God. Author John Eldridge pointed it out this way in one of his books. He says, in the Garden of Eden, man chose woman over God, and men have been choosing women over God ever since. And if that's not enough proof, look at their children, Cain and Abel, who get in a battle and jealousy leads to the first homicide recorded in Scripture. Families are great, right? But it continues to get, go from bad to worse as you work through the Old Testament. There's a civil war in the nation of Israel between David and one of his own sons that results in several thousand deaths. And we read that and we go, oh my gosh. It could have been resolved if it was just a conversation. But the reality is we find ourselves in similar situations with our own families. Or what about, you say, well, okay, you, you, you've camped out in the, New Te- or in the Old Testament for a while. Let's go to the New Testament. Glad you asked. 
Because the Apostle Paul, who takes the teachings of Jesus to Greek and Roman cultures all around the Mediterranean Rim, he took Jesus' teachings and he was trying to integrate how those would work and connect to families. But this was new. This was something futuristic that had never been tested. In other words, there had never been a culture where men, women, and children were treated equally. You see, when we think about family and we hear these principles that I'm going to share with you here in just a second, it seems a little bit old-fashioned. But the reality was when these were spoken for the first time, they were new ideas that we think are just common sense. And some of the reasons that these were difficult was because in this particular time frame, women, and I hate to say this, but you were treated just a little bit higher than cattle. So it was difficult for them to hear these words. Parents wouldn't name their children until they were sure they were going to survive. Or, this is a particular punch in the gut, parents wouldn't leave their inheritance to their own children. Rather, they would watch and they would find somebody that was more responsible and they would leave their inheritance to them after they adopted them. Or what about the classic phrase? We love to talk about this when we have kids in worship. When Jesus pauses during his teachings and he says, let the little children come to me. We love that verse, don't we? But when Jesus said those words, it was such a difficult thing because the people of that time didn't believe they could actually learn anything from children. So what was wrong with Jesus? But the Apostle Paul, as he teaches, he presents this idea that women and children have the same value as men. And it was something that was completely countercultural. But if you look at every culture since Paul's teachings, where women, children, and men are all treated and valued equally, women and children have thrived. But when they don't treat women and children as equals with men, in those cultures, they've suffered. You see, the New Testament was a door for women and children that no other culture or no other teaching had ever presented before. And it was disruptive to the culture because it provided hope to women and children. These teachings reflected that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for the men in the culture. He died for everybody, making them all heirs to the kingdom of God. And it breathed life into these cultures. It's honestly surprising that the teachings ever even made it out of the first century. And while what we're going to explore may seem pretty commonplace to us, it may seem old-fashioned, it was so futuristic to the audience that Paul was sharing these words with. So, what did Paul say? Well, we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. And here's what he says. He says, children... Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Any issues? No, we read those words and we go, oh, thank you. That's good. I'm going to use that with my own kids. Or what about Colossians chapter 3? When he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is where it gets a little bit interesting. Because Paul continues to tell men, you cannot be harsh with your wives, even though the culture believed they were just property. 
In other words, Paul's telling us, husbands, you have to love your wives, and it's important how you treat them. Now, this next one, I got to be honest, I was reluctant to put in, but it's in Scripture, so you got to talk about it. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I'll be honest, this is probably the New Testament principle about family that I violate the most. Because I say things to my kids, and I fully intend, with all the goodness in my heart, to be loving and caring and supportive and encouraging to them. But because of the tone or because of maybe my mannerisms when I say things, encouragement doesn't transpire. Instead, it's discouragement. Our words have weight. And dads, we have to be careful what and how we communicate to our children. But the Apostle Paul wasn't the only person to give us insight into how families and relationships work. In fact, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in the face of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Gentlemen, we have to take into account how our wives or how the women in our lives are feeling. And that's not easy sometimes. But in the first century, this was so futuristic because Peter was telling husbands, you have to be considerate for your wives. And they're like, why? Because we didn't choose them. Mom and dad chose them for us. But Peter tells husbands, you need to respect your wives because Jesus died on the cross for them, just like he did for you. So, as we look at these words of Paul and Peter, we can kind of summarize it into four statements. Husbands, love your wives and be considerate. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. And fathers, don't irritate your children. It's okay, you can laugh at stuff, it's all right. But while this may be common sense to us, this kind of introduces the tension of what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about today, which is this idea that we don't come from an ideal family, right? And chances are, we've probably desired to create an ideal family, but we may have not hit the mark with that either. And so there's this tension between what's real and what's ideal, And how do we connect those two? Well, Jesus illustrates this really directly because Jesus taught and pointed towards an ideal, yet he refused to condemn those who fell short. You see, in every situation, Jesus raised the standard by pointing to an ideal. For example, in the first century, men were aware that they should not commit adultery And they thought they knew what that meant. But Jesus raised the standard because he tells them, if you even look at another woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. In other words, all the men were guilty. And those individuals did the same thing that many of us would probably do today. They went to Jesus and they say, okay, what are you going to do? What are you going to do to me? Because I know what I've done is wrong. And Jesus says, I will forgive you. Because of this, Jesus told them that while the standard got higher, 
grace got deeper. While the standard got higher, his grace got deeper. While the standard got higher, forgiveness got richer. And while the standard got higher, the inclusion got broader. So how do we navigate this tension between the real and ideal? Let's just be honest. We live in a world that tells us we're supposed to get rid of all tension. The culture we live in wants to normalize everything so we don't feel bad about anything. We live in a culture today that wants everybody to feel all right about everything imaginable. And while that may be okay for you as an individual, and we tend to desire the ideal for our own children because parents, we all want what's better. We want better for our kids than what we had. But there's a principle that I want to tell you about today. It's a principle that I think that if we observe, it will help us in our families, in our marriages, in our relationships, any relationship. And it's this idea of mutual submission. It's an idea of mutual submission. And the idea of mutual submission teaches that we are here for other people. At the end of the day, as we talked about a few weeks ago, we are here to leverage all we have for other people. In other words, this communicates that no one else is more important than anyone else. And mutual submission encourages us to ask a question. And it's a question that I think that if we began to ask, it would revolutionize every relationship we have. And the question is simply this, what can I do to help? What can I do to help? How different would your families and would your relationships be if at least one time a day you ask that question? Because this question offers all of who you are to someone else. Teenagers, you will shock your parents. I guarantee it, even if they're sitting in here. If you walk in the kitchen tomorrow when you get home from school and you look at mom or dad or whoever happens to be in there and you say, what can I do to help? And the chances are they'll probably look at you and they'll say absolutely nothing. And you'll say, okay, great. I asked the question. I can go about my day. But here's the thing. And parents, why do we not expect them to ask that question? Because when we were their age, we didn't want to help anybody either. But what if they said, no, we're going to be a generation that is going to shift the thinking of the world. Now, parents, I know you're all awesome, and I know you're constantly looking for teachable moments. But what if you stopped and asked this question to your children? What can I do to help? Because if you employ this question, it will help you go positive more than you go negative. Women, this is a powerful question to ask the men in your life. Now, ladies, I know what's going to happen, right? And you know what's going to happen. You're going to ask us the question, what can I do to help? And what's our answer going to be? Nothing, I got this. Because we got everything, right? But, ladies, this question states that you are aware of the burden or responsibility that others are carrying and you want to help. In other words, you're saying, is there anything I can do to help you go further, faster? And the last group I want to speak to, gentlemen, we are terrified of this question. Because 
We're told we're supposed to be the heads of our household, right? Now, I don't know about you, but men, and I'll I'll just speak for myself, and you can echo this or deny it, I don't care. But are you smarter than your wives? I can tell you I'm not. And I'm okay with that. The world would be a much better place if women were in charge, right? I was waiting on it. You know, I think there was some truth when the girls in Pitch Perfect sang about who runs the world. Like, it should be girls, right? But here's the thing. If women were in charge of the world, it would probably be a better place. But men, this question is so important. But some of our wives are afraid to ask us to help them. You see, our wives may feel resistance when they ask for help. But when we are willing to ask the question, what can I do to help? We are literally opening the door to leverage our influence for their benefit. It's the bridge of mutual submission in the home. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Is you're probably thinking, that sounds great. But there are a couple barriers to me actually asking that question and embracing this concept in my family. The first is probably fear. Because you're probably afraid that if you ask that question, what can I do to help someone is going to take advantage of you. You're afraid that you're not going to be number one anymore. But somebody, probably what you're most afraid of is that somebody's going to ask that question and it's going to cost you something. And here's the good news. is 99.9% of the time when someone asks you that question, what can I do to help? Or when you ask that question rather to somebody else, it's not going to cost you your life like it did Jesus. It may cost you a little bit of time, energy, money, sweat, frustration. But great families and great relationships that say this question frequently are willing to leverage all of themselves for each other. So why don't we do it? Fear. The other reason, I think in all honesty, is because we're selfish. We're not willing to loan all of ourselves to somebody else, which means we'll never really be satisfied in our relationships. Our happiness with our family and with our relationships is not equated to getting everybody else to do what we want them to do, even though we're smarter than them. Happiness is mutual submission because this question forces you to lean in rather than pull away. And so to think about this, to learn to live, love, and go like Jesus, we need to learn to lean into our families, to lean into our relationships rather than pulling away from them. You see, we don't get happy when we get control. We get happy when we loan ourselves to other people, just like Jesus did for us. I'm going to invite the band up, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to spend a couple moments reflecting on what we just heard. Let's pray together. God, we just thank you so much for who you are, and God, we thank you that even though Scripture may oftentimes not have some great examples of family, that ultimately we know that you desire for us to lean into our relationship with you. And God, if we're here today or if we're watching online and we don't have a relationship for you, we pray that you would begin to stir our hearts 
And God, just invite us into that fellowship with you. That it wouldn't be a time of chaos and uncertainty, but it'd be a time of joy and celebration. God, we pray that we would be willing to ask others the question, what can I do to help as we seek to better our relationships with one another? Jesus, we love you. We thank you. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. As we think about the words from the author of Ecclesiastes and from Paul and from Peter, I want to invite you to wrestle with a couple questions. The first is this, is how can you more fully embrace a biblical worldview of equality that Paul taught about where men, women, and children are provided hope? the second question. Who can you ask the question, how can I help today? Who can you ask that question to today? And do you have the courage and the boldness to act on their request if it's provided? As we've discussed today, relationships and family, they can bring meaning to our lives. But as we've stated, all of our families look different. Some are blended, some are traditional, separated, divorced, with children, without children, or maybe you're single. But no matter what your family situation is today, know that Jesus died on the cross for you, for each and every one of you. His body was broken. His blood was shed so that you could become an heir to the kingdom of God. Thanks for tuning in to the New Hope Church podcast. If you would do us a favor and like or subscribe on your favorite platform, we would really appreciate it. Also, if you happen to have any questions, feel free to reach out to us at questions at becomehope.com. Have a great week and know that we are praying for you as you seek to be Jesus in every corner of your world.